So hi, folks. Um, re re-recording some of those uh, opening opening reflections. Um, so I said um, uh, that it is powerful to have a, an opportunity to practice in the middle of our lives. That uh, retreat. These online retreats offer the opportunity to integrate practice into one's space and the rhythms of one's day. Uh, And that's profound because our home is hopefully quite cozy, but, uh, but is often layered with like our deepest habitual energies. And so there's a genuine uh, opportunity, I feel. Sarao Tejaniya said, um, if, we, if we want to have real understanding, we must practice in real situations. And here we are. Here we are. So the Dharma is, uh, it's big enough to hold the fullness of your life. It's big enough to hold the fullness of your life. And that's important to get in our bones. Otherwise, we start dividing our experience into what belongs and what doesn't, what's dharmic and what's not. And we have to develop a certain kind of confidence that, uh, oh, yeah, everything can take its place in in the vastness of the dharma. And part of the, the one of the implications of that is that you don't need to pretend. I've always found pretending a very alienating experience. And in my own teaching as a teacher on this retreat, I try to have a kind of deep fidelity both to my freedom and to my pain, to my fidelity, to my love, and also to my confusion, to what's unhealed in me. And that doesn't mean I'm trying to spill out my own confusion, of course. It just means that in articulating the path of practice, I'm trying not to leave out any part of my experience, the lived reality of a Dharma life as I live it. And that's important to me because if it were not so, teaching would feel like pretending. And that's a very unsettling experience. And likewise, as practitioners, you're not being asked to pretend either. You're not being asked to pretend either. You're not being asked to draw a kind of line around some parts of your experience and pretend they're not real. Everything uh, belongs. And uh, when we get into that mode of pretending this is not real or this is not important to me. I'm not experiencing this. It it, um, creates some doubt 
and some wobble in our mind, practice starts to feel inauthentic, it's alienating. And so this is not an idealized path. This can hold the messiness and the fullness of our life. All, all that you experience can, um, can take its place. So the theme, we call it thought and freedom, thought and freedom of, of making meaning, of stepping out of the realm of meaning, of making new meanings, making more empowering meanings. And this is tricky business, right? Because thinking, thinking is tricky business. To think, excuse me, to think is almost always to be identified with thought. And it's much easier to be mindful of a sound or sensation than a thought, the, the kind of verbal whisper that we experience typically in our own heads. And uh, the kind of the stickiness of thought is distinctive. And to be identified with thought, this entails some measure of forgetting. Yeah. To be mindful of thought is one thing, but to be identified with it, we forget. We forget a lot. We live in that hermetically sealed bubble of the thought. And really to be identified with anything is to momentarily lose the Dhamma. And so we remember, mindfulness calls us back, we remember. Now all of this gives thinking a, a, a bad rap in meditation circles, right? And becomes a kind of the enemy within us or the experience that must be suppressed or controlled. And we, we find ourselves basically trying to cling our way into samadhi, into silence, into non-thought. But uh, we want to be very wary anytime we're turning an aspect of experience into an enemy. And importantly, spiritual thriving, our maturation, our growth on this path involves a lot of skillful thinking. In some ways, the Dharma is a collection of thoughts. It's perhaps points beyond that, but it itself is a collection of skillful thoughts, skillful means. So on our path, we, we, build, we build stories, we fabricate, we dissolve stories, we build new stories. And we get graceful in moving in and out of these different modes. Where uh, the metaphor I gave was that we're moving from a solid to a liquid to a gas. 
then people think that's it. We move to a gas. No. And back gas, liquid, solid. The kind of sense of the congealed nature of our being. This gets more fluid, more spacious, and then re-congeals. Here's a description of the, the, the spacious side from a meditator. It's as if I'm in a way made of air and airiness extends out. Spaciousness becomes the priority instead of boundaries. I dissolve into the, to the world. And where you have boundaries and the self as the foreground and the world as the background or as ground, here there isn't a ground. There isn't a foreground. In a way, the background is everything. The background is everything. The background is everything. That That is a very lovely way of describing a very open mind, uh, uh, describing a mode where there's very little meaning being made. The stories are very thinned out. But then we move back. We move back as a liquid, as a solid. And we do that movement without resistance or grief. That's hard, that's hard to move from a sense of spaciousness into fluidity and into the congealed solidity. But we actually have to be graceful as we move along this register. The point is not to be aghast, but to be flexible, to sublimate and condensate and congeal and freeze and thaw and all of it. And we do it with mindfulness. We make all those transitions with mindfulness. A practitioner friend of mine described this moment where she is like, uh, oh my God, I am a conscious being. And when she sort of relayed that as an insight to me, it's just kind of funny in a way because it's so obvious and touching because it was so profound. You know, it was like, oh, that, that, that was enough. That was enough. I, I'm, I'm, there's consciousness here. Of course, consciousness is a very mysterious thing that depends on the brain, but how does that work exactly? And um, and why? Why do we have conscious experience rather than just mechanical responding? And And what incredible fortune actually to be able to open to the field of experience. So mindfulness, mindfulness. This first first evenings, we usually emphasize mindfulness. 
this thing that it's said we can't get enough of. There's no overdoing mindfulness. We may have to balance the energy of it. Sometimes it can feel too energetic and we actually need a more effortless form of awareness. But it's said there's no overdoing mindfulness. It can't put us out of balance, whereas any other factor of mind might do that. And yet we all know the compelling, delicious character of unconsciousness, that sense of being lured by it. You know, the infinite scroll, just more data, you know, the cocoon of unconsciousness. And uh, unconsciousness is indeed like the path of least resistance often. And we crave the, the coziness, the coziness of certain kinds of meanings, certain kinds of thoughts, of stories, of pleasant, hopeful, promise, pleasure, the stories of, of all of this. We flood the kind of channels of data and get cocooned, you know, in unconsciousness. And I'm not entirely dismissive of that. I do think uh, there are times when something is actually regenerating in that cocoon. But there's risk in it too, and we probably overdo it. There's risk in mindlessness uh, because we're really tying our hearts to our habits, the wholesome ones and the unwholesome ones. And um, sati, sati mindfulness has, um, has connotations of uh, the word itself has been rendered as mindfulness. Um, but um scholar I've read said it was it was quite unclear the translators were quite unclear how to render that word we have inherited this word mindfulness for better or worse and it has connotations of memory of holding something in mind of remembering the the object of attention and when we're mindful we're we're capable we're encoding information we're encoding information is being absorbed by our information systems. And so we're capable of remembering it as opposed to, you know, being lost. And the, the words on the page are unrememberable. Now this knowing is um, it's more nuanced than just knowing sight, sounds, smells. It's knowing that we're knowing. It's knowing phenomena, not as the world, but as phenomena. It's knowing experience, not exactly as the world, but as phenomena. So I look out, not exactly at the world, 
There's a sense of, no, what's actually happening is seeing, hearing, thinking. Mindfulness involves um, thought and non-thought. It is non, you know, it is, um, it's non-conceptual. There are non-conceptual dimensions of awareness. And it also involves a boatload of wise view. Wise view. Which may not be exactly the same as thought, but it's close. It's close. Wise view. So how how does mindfulness involve thought and non-thought? One one model from a scholar, a schooler, that um, model of metacognition, mindfulness is is closely related to metacognition. And uh, this researcher suggests that, well, there are three three core metacognitive capacities that, that are relevant here for mindfulness. So there's metacognitive knowledge, facts about how the mind works. And so as a cardinal example, craving, you know, we learn that this is a craving is a major force in our minds and often causes problems. This is knowledge. We develop knowledge. There's metacognitive monitoring, which might be close to what we do when we practice um, formally, which is tracking one's mental operations. And so we practice metacognitive monitoring, we practice mindfulness, and we notice craving arising. It's here right now. And then the third capacity of metacognitive control, which are is using the results of metacognitive monitoring and our knowledge, really, to modulate our functioning. I notice craving and maybe knowing what I know, I soften, I let go. And so in all of this, you can hear how mindfulness is both about making meaning and stepping out of meaning, about building a kind of narrative of the moment and dropping into the bottomlessness of the moment. We try to be graceful. We try to be fluid. We... uh, hold meaning lightly most of the time. It's part of the the blessing of these realms where we're not making meaning is that when we emerge, when we solidify into liquid and solid, we hold our meanings a little bit more lightly. But um, there are other times when we may have to affirm meaning very strongly when I give myself a pep talk that I really need to hear. We may have to affirm meaning really strongly. 
And so we develop our own flexibility as we move through these these different modes of meaning, of not making meaning. And you'll see this in your day as you live your life, as you practice with us together. And so uh, the invitation is to... um, it's inviting you to wake up to uh, the wonder of uh, being aware, being awake in this moment, consciousness, and uh, it's not. It can feel this way, but it's not meant to be a grim duty, and it's certainly not another test, and it's not a way of extracting something from the moment or building a new self, or becoming something fresh. It's um, it's right here. Just bowing to the moment, wordlessly, learning from the moment, making meaning. Close with uh, uh, Ajahn Chah says um, the Dhamma has to sink deeply into the mind so that whatever we do, the mind has always goodness within it. All the ways of making merit are aiming at this. Goodness lies in the right view that is established in the mind then we don't have to celebrate it or let anyone know about it. Simply let the mind have firm confidence in the goodness and keep going like this. So offer this for your uh, consideration and uh, please take whatever is useful and uh, leave the rest behind.